This podcast is on slavery and the Bible. It's not just an interesting topic. It's one that has touched our hearts through the modern legacy of slavery, particularly for those who live in North America. Now, modern legacy I refer to are the inequalities of racism, lack of social justice, and a residue of hatred that touch the society where so many of us live. The issue of slavery is not just interesting. It's a topic where many of us may feel a bit of guilt, especially if, like me, you were brought up in a middle-class or an upper-middle-class home. Lately, I've been reading books. It seems like a lot of things about slavery have been going through my mind. I read Uncle Tom's Cabin. This is a book that exposes the ugliness, the wrongness, uh, even the stupidity of the rationale behind slavery in North America. Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote it in the 1850s, not many years before the Civil War started. And it's rumored that when she met the president, Lincoln said, so I'm meeting the, you're the one who started the Civil War with your book. Well, he was being lighthearted. Of course, it's a very serious topic. As a student of the Bible and a lover of history, I want to know the truth. Should Christians be embarrassed about the slavery passages of the Bible? So, with those thoughts in mind, I want to share some material that I hope will be really useful to you, particularly as you talk to people who stumble over the slavery passages. North American slavery had precedence in the Arab slave trade, of course, though throughout human history, slavery was hardly limited to Africa. But North American slavery lasted about four centuries. And as innocent people were kidnapped and brought across the Atlantic, it's been estimated something like 14 million died in the Middle Passage. Ultimately, this came to be the issue, the major issue behind the American Civil War, which is in the 1860s. And racism is still an ugly issue in the United States. I spent the first eight years of my life in Florida, then 10 years in New Jersey. It was alive and well in New Jersey, even in the North. And it was certainly present in Florida. And many memories of my early childhood center around the injustices that I saw. For example, uh, inevitably, the prisoners in the chain gang would all be black with their striped pajama suits, chained together, supervised by a sheriff and a deputy with shotguns who, of course, would be white. I remember different people telling me to be careful, not to trust people with colored skin. When you're a little boy, you wonder, color? Cool. <laughs> what are they? Blue? Uh, green? What color is that? But later on, you start realizing the stress 
that's in society, the history people have, the hatred, things start to make sense. And it just seems so complicated. Is Christianity part of this complication? Is Christianity at fault for the painful experience in the United States? And while we're sharing some introductory thoughts, I should probably emphasize that slavery still exists. For example, in Asia, little girls are abducted to become sex slaves. In some countries, parents, at the end of their economic rope, sell their daughters into prostitution. For many years in Africa, young boys had been abducted to be pressed into service as child soldiers. When we hear the word slavery, we may also soften or spiritualize it and think of slavery in tough economic conditions. People who are trapped in dead-end jobs. But I really mean in this presentation to deal with slavery historically in the ancient world, in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament. Does the Bible support slavery? A thoroughly demeaning, dehumanizing institution. Does it? Slavers quoted the scriptures to support their inhumane practices. Yet American chattel slavery was very different from slavery in the ancient world. As we shall soon see, antebellum slavery provides only a false analogy. Slavery in the ancient world. Most became slaves because of poverty or war. In other words, it wasn't just because they were pressed into slavery, kidnapped, as in the European slavery drawing on Africa, but many voluntarily entered this condition. They entered this condition, this condition because they had nowhere else to go economically. And of course, uh, captives of war had nowhere to go either. I mean, the, the world as they knew it was radically changed, and what choice did they really have but to go with the conquering people? And yet even so, in ancient times, slavery was often not permanent. There was a hope of eventual emancipation. And for those who sold themselves into slavery or were forced to, to pay off their debts, we call these indentured servants, their period of service could come to an end. Slaves possessed some legal rights. There was due process. I'm not uh, implying that the ancient courts didn't favor the landowning wealthy against uh, the servant class, but there was due process. Certainly, it was not that way in the country where I grew up. In the ancient world, slaves could even own their own slaves. Um, They could take servants. In the ancient world, slavery was not racially based. Uh, It had nothing to do with one's racial or ethnic background. Uh, It would be very hard to know whether someone was a slave or not apart from clothing. 
sometimes clothing indicated his status as a slave as it was suited to different professions. But it would not be skin color. Uh, a, a slave is just as likely to have light skin, if not more, than uh, to have dark skin. So it was not racially based. Again, a major difference from the North American variety. It was not really socially based. Slaves were pretty far down, but they weren't the lowest rung of the ladder of society. Nor was it necessarily degrading. In fact, being a slave could be upgrading. Well, we'll take an example from the Old Testament. Joseph, who was promoted under Potiphar and again under Pharaoh. There was nothing that kept a slave down in some conditions. That is, he was able to rise up. Slaves could own property. They could lead a normal family life. Uh, and sometimes even participate in the same clubs as their masters. We know this from the literary and archaeological evidence of the Roman Empire. They could be in the same clubs. There wasn't segregation at that level. Of course, it was easiest for slaves in the city. Slaves in the farms had to work harder. By far the hardest would have been conditions would be those working in the mines who maybe only had a couple years to live. Uh, many of those would be there as criminals. Slavery did not necessarily entail menial positions in the ancient world. Slaves could be in the civil service. Uh, they could work as doctors or nurses, accountants, writers. In the ancient world, there are a number of famous uh, former slaves. Think of Aesop, as in the fables. Truth is, Patrick of Ireland, sometimes called St. Patrick, had been a slave. Felix, uh, in Acts 23 and 24, came from that background. Slaves were sometimes freed because their labor was cheaper when the master wasn't paying room and board. This may sound amazing, but uh, if you think of the master as an employer, if he freed the slave, then he would just be paying wages and he wouldn't have to be uh, paying for room aboard, that became the slave's responsibility. So in some cases, masters would free the slaves for economic reasons. Freeing of slaves was actually very common. Very, very common. And uh, I came across one book recently that suggested that in the Roman Empire, there may, may have been as many freed slaves, freedmen, as there were current slaves. Around the first century, Slaves were freed so often that Augustus Caesar had to make a law to deal with this reality. And Augustus Caesar, he was the ruler of Rome from uh, 27 BC to 1480. He made a law that no one could be freed before the age of 30. Well, why would he make a law like that if it wasn't happening, that, that many were being freed in their 20s or younger. Now, obviously, the picture I'm, uh, I'm painting here is not the one most of us would be familiar with. Slaves owning property, uh, due process, having their own servants, buying their freedom. It's not racial. They could have good, good jobs, maybe even jobs that were more prestigious than their masters. The emperor, the Caesar, is intervening and saying that 
you've got to stop freeing your slaves until age 30 so society doesn't become over, overrun with slaves. Obviously, if this is slavery, it is far less in common with the North American variety than we ever imagined. Isn't this interesting? Now let's transition into slavery and the Old Testament. Then we're going to look at slavery in the New Testament. I think one very important theme is the dignity of humanity. When God creates humans in Genesis 1, he creates them in his image, male and female, he creates them. And uh, there's no uh, subspecies, we're all the same species. In a sense, we're all one class, we're we're people, We're, we're God's children, the sons and daughters of God. And that may explain why in the Old Testament it was illegal to kidnap. Kidnapping was one of the capital crimes, in fact, uh, under the law of Moses. That's not to say that someone may not have been kidnapping slaves. They weren't all from uh, remnants of war or people who had sold themselves into uh, servitude. But we have anti-kidnapping laws. They were anti-harm laws. Uh, I think that's... uh, that's uh, this, let me explain how unusual this is. Uh, no other ancient law held a master accountable for the treatment of his slaves. I, I'll, I'll read from Exodus twenty-one twenty. When a man strikes a slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But the slave survives a day or two. He is not to be avenged, for his slave is his money or his property. We go down to verse 26. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. He knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female. He shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Now, that's, that's really quite something. If, and it's not, of course, you could read this and say, oh, so the Old Testament allows masters to poke out their slaves' eyes and knock out their teeth. I, I, I don't think that's quite right. The Old Testament regulates slavery. It doesn't encourage it. And in fact, if a master got physical, got violent with a slave and knocked a tooth out, he had to free the slave. Now, let me give you some contrast. The uh, law of Hammurabi, you know, the, the great Babylonian uh, law slave... Uh, Greek Babylonian law, law code uh, permitted a master to slice off the ear of a disobedient slave. So the law held masters to account in, in, the, in the world for other people's servants. I mean, you couldn't attack someone else's servant, but you could do whatever you wanted with your own. And that would explain why you have the strange regulation in Exodus Oh, you've read it, 21.6, where after the period of service, a slave could say, look, I want to be your slave forever. And they would go to the door, and his ear would be pierced, presumably with some kind of marker or ring, some kind of token, and then he would become a slave forever. Now again, let me, com- let me contrast this with, with other laws. The Hittites, the Hittite empire, imposed a fine for sheltering a runaway. Slave ran away, and you sheltered him, you had to pay a fine. Babylonians 
enforced a death penalty for abetting runaways. See, slaves were just property. So in the Old Testament, in one sense the slaves are property, but in another sense they're fellow human beings. It seems, or it feels to me, midway between the worldly institution of slavery and what we would feel more comfortable with, that is, a standard economic relationship. In Babylon, returned slaves, when they were captured, were branded or their ears slit. Now, get ready for a contrast. In the Old Testament, and now I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 23.15. I'll mainly just refer to these passages because there's so many. Um, We read this. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns. Wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. I'm reading, by the way, from the ESV. Now that's interesting because you remember in the New Testament, we had the runaway slave Onesimus. And Paul, in the letter of Philemon, is asking him to return to his master. Now that may look like a contradiction of Deuteronomy 23. Uh, I'll mention that in the New Testament part and clear up that issue, uh, tie off that loose end. But just to say, in the Old Testament, you weren't even allowed to return a slave who had run away. On top of this, we have to consider how many laws existed in favor of the poor, uh, like the reaping laws. Uh, you know, you weren't allowed to reap all the way to the edge of your field. And if you, if you dropped something when you were harvesting, you had to leave it there for the orphan, for the widow, uh, for the poor, for the alien. Um, there was automatic debt cancellation after so many years. And as we see in Deuteronomy 15, God did not want poverty. God is not endorsing servitude. This was not the plan. But uh, the Hebrew religion takes hold in a real world. Again, the ideal, there shall be no poor among you. 15.4 For the Lord will bless you in the land that your Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. And yet, as a realistic document, verse 7, the Bible foresees that tough stuff will happen financially. If among you or one uh, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land, the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. You shall open your hand. So, yes, they're going to be poor, but as the people of God, we need to be generous. And then verse 11, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor, and your land. So this is quite interesting. We have a verse 4 saying there, there, there should be no poor, and verse 11 saying there always would be poor. Well, that's the gap between the ideal and the real. And, and can we hold on to our realism and our idealism? I think so. The point is that God did not, does not desire poverty or servitude. Hebrew slavery was an oasis of liberty compared to typical slavery among the pagans. And, you know, in the, the other ancient law codes that survived, uh, usually the issue of how to deal with slaves comes at the end of the law code. But let's consider the Hebrews' law code. Take the book of Exodus. You have the Ten Commandments given in chapter 20. The Decalogue, the heart of the law. And then... Where are the slaves dealt with? Immediately 
in Exodus 21. This shows there's a direct connection between righteousness before God and righteous dealings with our fellow man. As I mentioned, slaves would be set free if a master knocked a tooth out. I mean, there's, there are human rights here. Uh, the truth is, indentured servitude, as in Exodus 21 or Leviticus, uh, was a dramatic improvement over slavery, slavery in, in the worst sense. Servitude existed fundamentally because poverty existed. Hebrew slaves were freed in the seventh year, though, as we read, they had the option to extend their slavery to some indefinite point in the future. But they would be freed in the seventh year. So, this is not a, um, a, a lifelong, it's not like life in prison, hard labor, n- not at all. And then one more passage dealing with uh, the Hebrew slaves that comes to my mind is in Nehemiah 5. When the people of God are trying to get back on their feet again and there's uh, poverty and some of the richer are not being open-handed, kind-hearted towards the poorer um, Israelites and, and, and they've had, they couldn't, uh, you know, they're mortgaging, mortgaging their fields, they're trying to pay their debts and they're having to sell some of their children into slavery. When Nehemiah hears this, he is, he's so upset. I mean, he's, he's pummeling them. Look at Nehemiah 5. And he forces them to repent. Well, non-Hebrew slaves were treated a little bit differently. Um, they weren't necessarily freed in the seventh year. I used to think they were until a couple years ago. I realized, wait a minute. Those laws about freeing in the seventh year had to do with Hebrew slaves. Now, I don't know if that's what they did to their non-Hebrew slaves, but I don't see any scripture saying they did. Still, kidnapping was forbidden. Kidnapping was forbidden. So... Um, Again, there, there, there was still a, a supply of, of slaves. Um, there would have been many slaves, but uh, particularly from war. But kidnapping itself was forbidden. The uh, foreign slaves did not enjoy the same freedoms as the, as the Hebrew slaves. Leviticus 25 says that they could take their male and female slaves from the pagan nations. They could even be bequeathed to their master's children um, in, in the master's will. And yet, given the biblical emphasis on compassion, the imperative to love the alien, it seems likely that even foreign slaves were treated with um, a modicum of dignity. Let me read. Uh, uh, let me read um, an illustrating passage from Leviticus 19, that that chapter in Leviticus that that really reveals the heart of God in so many ways. Um, uh, 33, 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So perhaps it was easier for the Israelites to be kinder to their servants, their slaves, because they themselves had come from slavery. And again, slaves were protected from abuse by the laws And interestingly, foreign servants could even be elevated in rank, as we see in 1 Chronicles 2, in that case through marriage to an Egyptian servant. Uh, Slaves could have inheritance rights. One other thing I'll mention about the non-Hebrew slaves. Uh, Non-Israelites were not permitted to acquire land, and so that suggests that they might have had no option but to attach themselves 
to an Israelite family. In other words, they may have fared better um, in a position of slavery. So we have uh, some degree of dignity with the foreign slaves, better treatment uh, with Hebrew slaves, uh, with the mandatory emancipation, and so forth. What about the New Testament? Well, let's begin. In the context of the Roman Empire, we've got to realize that there were a lot of slaves uh, and a lot of free slaves. Perhaps uh, one-third of the empire were slaves. Uh, some people, I've seen different estimates on different um, programs I've, I've watched and uh, different books I've read. Uh, some would say uh, it may have been as high as 50% slaves. I mean, if that's the case, that's, uh, that's truly amazing. Uh, perhaps one-third were slaves and another one-third were freedmen. The Romans were ruthless in putting down slave revolts. For example, the one that took place under Spartacus. Now, often Christianity is criticized for not head-on attacking the institution of slavery. But this is really anachronistic. I mean, to, to act as though this is something that's going on in our country or in our culture uh, that we could, we could attack in that way. Uh, Paul and the other Christians would not just have been in prison, but that Christianity would have come to an end uh, for stirring up that kind of dissension. In general, uh, Christianity did not attack social issues head-on. It believed in dealing with social evils by the power of the Holy Spirit, transforming hearts one by one. But again, it's unfair, it's anachronistic to fault Paul for uh, getting rid of, you know, making that part of his agenda, to get rid of slavery, any more than you know, for him to attack Rome and to attack the emperor and say, well, this is tyranny, it's despotism, it's not proper democracy. That, that would have done nothing to help, and it wasn't the real issue anyway. Of course, Paul did say in 1 Corinthians 7 that slaves should take the opportunity of freedom if it's possible. But if they weren't able to be given their freedom, to be content. I want you to notice something interesting in Ephesians 6 and also uh, Colossians 3 and 4. Notice that the powerless are mentioned first and then the powerful. There's a lot to be said on, on politics in the Bible. Uh, let, me, um, uh, yeah, let, let me read this to you. I, I think you, it may be enlightening. And I'll read the Colossians passage uh, 3.18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. There's the woman. Then husbands, love your wives, do not be harsh with them. Notice, the husbands are not told to expect submission. You know, beat your wife if she gets out of hand, like the Quran says. No, it, it says don't be harsh. But notice, the wives are addressed first, then the husbands. Then, verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So there, again, the weaker are mentioned first, the children, and then the powerful, that's the parents. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there's no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so, in those passages, the weak are addressed first. 
Notice the priority there. Of course, we've got passages like Colossians 3.11 and, the, and probably the most famous, Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a beautiful passage. So being in Christ, our status in Christ, does not depend on socioeconomic factors. I, I think that explains why in the early church, sometimes leaders uh, were... Uh, people from the lower classes or slaves. Now, to the troubling matter of Philemon. Paul sent Onesimus, who had become a Christian in Rome, back to Philemon. Why? Well, one, obviously he trusted the slave, Onesimus. He trusted him. Uh, he wasn't sent back under guard. He was asking him to travel back from Rome to, to Asia Minor. That's, that's not a short trip. So there was freedom of travel. Uh, I believe uh, it's a bit of a different situation from Deuteronomy 23. For one, the Mosaic law is no longer in force. And for two, there's something more important than one's economic condition here. It's the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. And Paul is dealing with this. He's appealing to Philemon's better nature he wants him to forgive Onesimus, even to set him free. Uh, and he wants there to be reconciliation in the church, harmony, peace uh, between the brothers. That's, that's a very important issue. And that's really what Philemon is about. So it, it seems an exception to Deuteronomy 23 until we remember that Deuteronomy 23 no longer applies. And uh, there's a deeper issue. It has to do with love and unity in Christ. In the New Testament, the slave trade is mentioned in passing. Um, in, uh, as the, it said, the entire Roman economic machine is going to be destroyed. It's going to collapse. And the slave trade was part of that. That's in Revelation 18.13. But look at the words that Paul has for slave traders in 1 Timothy 1.10. What does this say? You know, it's, it's talking about the law of it's not made for the good people, uh, but it's laid down for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their mothers and fathers, for murderers, for sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So there you can see that being a slave trader was... Uh, a mark of lawlessness, disobedience, sinfulness, and godlessness. And that is the New Testament perspective. And also, when you look at these passages, for example, First um, Timothy 6, 1 to 2, nowhere are masters told to demand submission from their slaves. It's similar to the husband and wife issue. Uh, I'll read First uh, Timothy 6, 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke of slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of, the God, of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful, and so forth. Well, masters are not told to demand submission from their slaves. So it's not really fair to the intent of Scripture to try to use the Bible to prop up unjust economic stru structures. That doesn't work. 
And besides, true freedom has nothing to do with political rights. Real slavery is slavery to sin, and true freedom is not economic freedom. And passages like Romans 6 and John 8 and 1 Corinthians 7 come to mind. So when we look at the New Testament, we see uh, slavery is not legislated at all. Of course, the people of God in the New Testament are not a nation, so they're not inheriting economic structures that they need to manage. They're a minority within a nation, within multiple nations. In the Old Testament, the laws regulated slavery. They managed it. It wouldn't be right to say that they approve it. You may say they condone it to some extent, but uh, with all human beings being created in God's image, the principle of dignity is important in both Testaments. By the New Testament time, uh, yes, they were still slaves, but now uh, with the prospect of the slaves becoming brothers and sisters in Christ, that trajectory of freedom, that trajectory of respect is intensified. I want to talk about the early church um, after the first century. Uh, Well, uh, I'm going to actually share one passage that's from the turn of the century. But in the early second century, in Bithynia, which is part of Asia, um, Asia Minor, a couple of slave women were captured and were tortured. And the, the Roman, uh, Romans were trying to extract information from them. That's why they were tortured. And the, the governor of Bithynia uh, was, uh, was Pliny, and he sent information to the emperor, to Trajan, about Christianity. I mean, it's a fascinating passage. I won't read that. But what, one thing that's interesting is that these slaves, these were both women, occupied positions of leadership. So the early church, whatever prejudice existed in society against slaves, uh, did not embrace that. The early church really took Jesus and Paul's word seriously. There's, in the church, there's no slave or free. But there was also no automatic exemption from the requirement to show good character just because one was a slave. Sometimes uh, we have a, a kind of a guilt over people who are less fortunate. It's probably most commonly experienced when people from wealthy nations visit poor nations and end up making false comparisons and feel guilty just for living a, a modest life. Well, there's no automatic exemption. It's not as though, well, if you're a slave, then, then you can be any kind of person you want because you've been through so much. Oh, no. And I'd like to read something from the Apostolic Constitutions. Now, this, I'll admit, this is a couple hundred years later than the New Testament, so I wouldn't pay too much attention to it if I were you, but I think it is interesting. Those that first come to the mystery of godliness, let them be examined as to the causes for which they come to the word of the Lord. And let those who bring them exactly inquire about their character and give them their testimony. Uh, so let me, uh, let me explain what's happening here. This is a, a text that's talking about uh, prospective converts to Christianity. And they would, they would bring them to the church leaders And they wouldn't say, oh, you want to become a Christian? Um, Do you mean well? Okay, we'll baptize you. And that's it. That's not how it worked. They asked questions. 
And perhaps they asked more questions at that time than they did in the first century, I don't know. But let me continue with the quote. Let their manners and their life be inquired into, and whether they are slaves or freemen. Now, if anyone is a slave, let him be asked who his master is. If he is slave to one of the faithful, that is, you know, he's another Christian, let his master be asked if he can give him a good character reference. If he cannot, let him be rejected until he show himself to be worthy to his master. But if he does give him a good character reference, let him be admitted. But if he is a household slave to a heathen, let him be taught to please his master so that the word is not blasphemed. That's Apostolic Constitutions 8.32. You notice that. There, I guess the modern equivalent would be before someone is baptized, the leaders of the church would talk to his employer or her employer and ask if this employee has a good character. Is this a, a good worker? Is this someone who's honest? And if they say, well, not really, then they'd say, well, you need to keep working until you really understand this. And that's a little bit different from expecting a completely changed life before conversion because the Holy Spirit is the power that helps us to make those changes ultimately. But it shows a lack of sincerity um, when, when someone is, is living a double life or pretending a life of pretense. And there are people who see us uh, regularly, typically family members, roommates, and employers. So perhaps this was requiring more than the church expected in the first century, but it's an interesting piece Nonetheless, so many Christians were attracted, uh, many slaves, sorry, were attracted to the Christian faith. It's not like some modern critics put it, you know, that Christianity was demeaning the slaves. No, why, why would slaves, why would so many slaves want to become Christians? Now, some critics uh, slandered Christianity as, as just being full of women and Slaves and old people. Well, I think what's that, sh what's that showing is that everyone's welcome. It's not a club for the strong. Slaves were attracted to Christian faith for the same reason that minorities and women were attracted. Because there they received respect. There they were welcomed, loved, and honored. It's time to... Well, it's time to formulate some conclusions. Slavery would certainly never be the first choice for anyone, but there are different degrees, different kinds and different degrees of slavery in the ancient world. Slavery in ancient times was radically different from slavery in the more recent American experience, and many of the implied comparisons made by critics of Christianity are, are simply unfair. Hebrew slavery, that is in the Old Testament times, 2nd and 1st millennium B.C., saw an increased humaneness over the, what was found in the slavery in the secular world. Uh, there were built-in laws to protect the person. Uh, there was dignity. There was due process. And the hope of, of emancipation. Um, and in the case of Hebrew slaves, after 
six years of service, and the seventh year they would go free, free. Through the course of biblical history, I see an ethic of dignity and respect being cultivated. There's a kind of pedagogical function. God is educating his people. He's educating mankind. He's bringing them on from a, a, a less advanced, more primitive, more barbaric uh, state to one of more civilization and kindness and understanding. And it, this doesn't come all at once any more than someone jumps from uh, the times table to calculus in, in a week. Uh, it, it takes many years. We see progressive revelation. God is enlightening his people more and more through the course of biblical history. Now, of course, there's a difference between recording and approving. The Old Testament records many things that are offensive or scandalous uh, to modern ears. But recording something, uh, and this is very obvious, for example, in the book of Judges, where we read of many atrocities. Recording is not the same as approving. In the case of the institution of slavery, the law of Moses regulates. It does not approve. I, I can make another parallel with the, the laws of marriage and divorce. They're regulated for the protection of the weaker, in this case, women, as in Deuteronomy 24, given a certificate of divorce to protect her against future claims by her former husband. This gives her a chance to have a new start. Regulation is not the same as approbation. God's highest standard and will are revealed only in the New Testament, particularly as we look at the words of Jesus, this becomes clear. So there's an overall trajectory. Uh, we see, yes, there was bad treatment of slaves, uh, more of a chattel slavery, but the Israelite treatment of foreign slaves uh, is, is better. The Israelite treatment of Hebrew slaves, better still. And this moves on towards, ultimately, socioeconomic freedom. And where does that come from? It comes from the influence of Christ. As men and women labored for emancipation, particularly in Britain and in the United States, so that slavery as, as an institution would crumble. These are people impelled by motives coming from the Spirit of Christ. So through Christian influence, slavery was eventually eliminated in most of the world. This did not take place because of the influence of Hinduism or Islam or any other major world religion, but because of Christianity. And again, slavery in the New Testament times was radically different from slavery in the more recent American experience. Most criticisms of slavery in the Bible are based on caricatures, ignorance of Hebrew law, lack of exposure to the true message of the gospel. I do hope that this presentation has given you much to think about and understand that just because someone's talking about slavery in the U.S. in the 1800s, that does not mean that the verses in the Old and New Testaments that refer to slavery are talking about exactly the same thing. Not at all. As believers, we need to be ready to defend the Bible from unfair attack. Or to put it another way, in our interactions with outsiders, you and I need to know our stuff. <laughs>